Colossians chapter 3, you know, I, I was thinking today, I marvel at how God's word is so infinitely deep and rich. I was looking through my notes and I noticed that this is the, the 25th sermon on this, on this short little book so far. And that's it, just encouraging to know that God, and, and my goodness, how much more could could be could be said. I mean we we've seen how in a in a world of chaos and evil Christ still reigns and he reigns supreme. In spite of our sin and in spite of our love of the darkness, we've seen how Christ has come on this heroic rescue mission where he's conquered evil and delivered us from our sin and raised us up to new life and and secured for us an eternal destiny in his kingdom. Oh, how true it is that there's no more excellent name than the name of Jesus. So don't tire of turning your eyes to him. No greater name. We've seen he is indeed exalted above every name, and he is infinitely satisfying to the human heart. We've said it many times that there is nothing better, and there's no one better than Jesus. For the last several months, we have been thinking about how these incredible spiritual realities impact or intersect with our lives, particularly the ethic of our lives, the way that we live, the way that we, the way that we behave. That since we have been delivered from the hand of a demonic ruler and transferred, the text says, Colossians 2, transferred into a new kingdom, the kingdom of his beloved son, we've asked, how should we act? What difference does that make? How should we think? How should we treat the people around us? Mark and I briefly before the sermon were, were talking about uh, Sue Ellen and Gabe's transition to a new culture and, and I've had the chance to live overseas for more than a week, a couple months. It's such a radical shock, right, that I would be transferred from Bethania, North Carolina into Senegal, West Africa as a 19-year-old. I mean, it was, my brain was working so hard just to process the world around me and everything about my life changed and my behavior changed and I ate with my hands and I learned not to eat certain things and not to go certain places, right? I mean, it's just, how much more different is it that we would be transferred into a new kingdom. That is far more significant than a transcultural uh, change, right? A change in, in your life. We have been changed, we've been transferred into this new kingdom. And that has to affect how we live. I hope that you have been seeing this. I hope that, that you are seeing that the, this new life that we see in chapter 3, verse 1, that we've been raised up with this new life is a radically different life than our old ones, our old lives. And, and I pray that God is working to shake our hearts into seeing that his call for us is higher, not lower than we expected. And that his grace is sufficient to get us there. So it is so tempting to settle for a vision of the Christian life that is cultural or that is uh, acceptable or simple and miss the call that God is giving to us. We don't want to do that. We want to get our picture from the text. 
And so tonight, we will continue our study in this book by looking at verses 14 and 15, which simply extend and elaborate and support what we've already seen, particularly on Sunday and last Wednesday, of how the gospel transforms all of our human relationships. And Paul will continue that idea uh, even, even further. But we're seeing the principles that, that we, and what we've seen so far is that when we are saved, we're not just given some uh, comfy, eternal life insurance policy that enables us to live out the rest of our days in peaceful isolation, right? Waiting, you know, waiting on the good times. But it's more than that. We've seen that when God saves us, He gives us a radical new relational ethic. A radically different way of interacting with other people around us. And what we've seen is that this ethic, what it actually does is that it enables all peoples to benefit from the saving work of Christ. Even people, we haven't really explored this, but it came to me like this today. Even, even people who do not yet know Christ, they will come into contact with the glory of his epic accomplishment simply when they're loved by a Christian. Isn't that interesting to think about? As they come into contact with you, a new creature... They also come into contact with the risen Christ because you have been united to him. Most recently from verse 13, what we saw this past Sunday, we saw that since Christians are the most forgiven people in the world, we should be the most forgiving people in the world. You remember? Since we are the most forgiven people in the world, we are to be the most forgiving people in the world. And Paul just continues this train of thought. Uh, there's no reason for, not divide, for dividing the text. This, this is a, a continuation from Sunday, right? A continuation from verse 13. And what, we, what we'll see is that he's calling us to put on or to continue putting on the garments of a Christian. And specifically the Christian virtue, the supreme virtue of Christ, love. Okay? Love. So let's read this text together and see how those who have been gripped by the gospel are now ruled by love and the peace of Jesus Christ. So I'll read verses um, 12 through 15. Hear the word of the Lord. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, Meekness and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body and be thankful. This is the reading of God's word. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. So you can trust it. Let's pray. Father, as we do every week, every night, we ask for your help. You said that apart from you, we can do nothing, and we have an aim tonight to do more than nothing. We want to grow, we want to be nourished. We want to be fed. 
We want to learn. We want more grace to serve those around us and to be faithful where you've called us to live. So would you help us to this end? Help us to see and to understand the peace of Christ and how that affects our lives. Help us to get a clearer picture of your love for us so that we would be sacrificial and faithful in our love for others. Help us to this end, we pray. And it's in the name of Jesus we ask boldly. Amen. Let me first draw your attention to this command, this obvious command here in verse 14. That is, to put on love. To put on love. I want to be really clear. Whenever there's a command in the text, hear this command, church. Put on love, the supreme virtue. As always, Paul's choice of words is important and it is interesting. He begins verse 14 with a qualification which may cause you to scratch your head a little bit. He says, above all these, right, referring to the qualities uh, above, above all the, or prior to, right, above all these put on love. Which means that Paul is somehow singling out or uh, drawing more attention to the virtue of love over these other virtues, which can feel strange. He's distinguishing it above the others. And I suppose that one of the implications here is that it's possible to have compassion with no love and humility with no love and meekness with no love and and that should should cause us alarm but we can more importantly notice that above compassion and above humility and above patience and even above forgiveness we are to love love is above or more important than these things, which I think seems, it's a little surprising to me, and I have to, to think about it, right? But, but if you think about the scriptures as a whole, there are plenty of places in the Bible where love is singled out as the supreme Christian virtue. Let me remind you of a couple. The love chapter, 1 Corinthians 13, verse 13 says, So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. That love is greater than faith. Always made me scratch my head. Or think of Galatians 5, where, where love is considered to be the primary expression of faith. That if there's genuine faith, then love will be present. It says, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through, fill in the blank church, love. Right? Both Jesus and Paul frequently taught... That the entire law of God, the entire Old Testament ethic, it all hangs upon love. To love God and love people is what Jesus said. These are the great commandments. And these sum up the law and the prophets. What an incredible statement. That, that if you love God and if you love people, you don't need the other commandments. Right? You're already fulfilling them. They all hang together on love. Isn't it interesting to think that the same dynamic also, also appears in the character of God? God himself is love. That's how he describes himself. He is love. Sure, he is forgiving and patient and, and compassionate, but above all, God is love. 
Now, now this isn't that hard to understand because couldn't we say that love is the basic foundation for, for these other qualities, right? So if we are to put on true love, we will also be putting on these other qualities, and so Paul singles love out. The, the picture here, the language, remember we've been talking about putting on Christian clothing and taking off stained, defiled garments, right? So he continues that image by saying, put love on top of all these others, right? It, it's, the, it's the garment on top. It's what, ties, it's what ties them all together. I'm not good enough with fashion to give you a helpful illustration. I made my romper statement last week and I've spent my fashion expertise, right? But, but Paul's saying that the quality that binds the outfit together, that holds it all together, is love, which is where we can focus our attention. Perhaps this is a great way to grow in humility, a way to grow in compassion to forgrow, to grow in forgiveness for out of love these things will follow they will flow but notice what the text says is the result of this perfect love perfect harmony perfect relational harmony. We have to be careful not to be too dismissive here, right? We humans don't really deal with the standard of perfection uh, very often, right? We're, we're more used to like good enough, right? Uh, you see the, the hand sanitizer kills 99.9% .9 of germs. Perfect, right? It's good enough, good enough for me. Or, or you might take a drug that helps uh, that helps 75% of patients in clinical studies, right? If you ignore the side effects or whatever, right? But in God's world, he deals in terms of perfection to the zillionth decimal place. Isn't that interesting and exciting to think about? Which brings us to our next point, that not only will perfect, not only will perfect love eventually yield perfect harmony, but we are called to perfect harmony. We are called to perfect harmony. That is, that's what this text tells us, right? Love is to bind us together into perfect harmony. That is God's standard for us now. And so while we're, but while we're thinking about this phrase, perfect harmony, I'd like for you also to bring verse 15 into your view. Because Paul is speaking of a certain kind of peace, right? The peace of Christ. He reminds the Colossians that it is to this very thing that they have been called. Do you see that there? The, this sense of calling? Where, so we're, we're picking up again on the election language that Paul used in verse 12, that we are chosen ones, and now we are seeing that he's called us to something. And, and so think about what that means. It is not simply, Christian, that you are God's people. It's not simply that you are his people, but you are called to be a certain kind of people. Do you see? You're called, he, God has a particular identity in view. He has a particular identity for his people that he has called us to. He has called us and he has chosen us to be his, but in the same way, he has also called us to be people who live together in perfect harmony. Perfect harmony. I can't even imagine perfect harmony harmony. That we are to be ruled by Christ in such a way that we experience and enjoy peace, perfect peace in our relationships. 
That we would be ruled by Christ in such a way that that same peace would rule and reign in our relationships. And we'll pick up on that in a minute. But take notice again of the standard here. Perfect harmony. Christian, this is God's standard for your relationships. It is not enough to, be, to live in harmony 95% of the time with 95% of people. Wouldn't that be incredible? I mean, can you just imagine your life? If you got along, if you lived in harmony with 95% of the people in your life 95% of the time? My goodness, that sounds awesome. Is that God's call for us? Is that the ideal? Is that his standard? Is that what he's called us to? It's excess perfect, perfect harmony. Which teaches us an important lesson. Conflict, right? The, the, absent, the lack of harmony, the opposite of harmony, is always sinful. It is always sinful. It is not just a misunderstanding. I mean, obviously misunderstandings can happen. But conflict is not just a misunderstanding or it's not just a miscommunication. You ever done that in, in your marriage, Right? Well, I guess we just had a miscommunication. We'll just move on. It's not merely a difference of opinions or incompatible personalities. Conflict is sinful. It is always, sin is always involved. Do you remember what James said? James gave the explanation. He said that the source of all conflicts and the source of all disagreements comes from sinful passions. It comes out of sinful passion. That doesn't mean that you sin to cause the conflict, right? I've never been in a conflict that didn't start with someone else. It's not true, right? But that's what I think in the moment, right? It's always someone else's fault. But, sin, but conflict is sinful, which, which means that for the Christian who is called to perfect harmony, we can never ignore or run from conflict. So often in counseling, I talk with folks and I try, to, I try to help them think about this and to think about how God is calling us not to ignore the conflict in our life, not to uh, pretend it's not there or diminish it or act like it's not a big deal or definitely not to blame it on someone else, but to address it and to address it as sinful. It must always be addressed and sin must always be now, I'm not going to walk through how to deal with conflict tonight. I'm simply pointing out that if perfect harmony is God's goal, then anything less than that standard is the work of the evil one. If perfect harmony is God's goal, then anything less than that is the work of the evil one. So think about how that impacts your relationships, right? If we're to take our conflicts, we must take our conflicts seriously and recognize them at least as symptoms of, of the sinful hearts, that the sin that still remains and lingers in our hearts. Perhaps I can put it like this, especially, think, of, think especially after Sunday's sermon on forgiving as Christ has, think of it like this. God is not okay with any of the broken relationships in your life. Whether that's your ex-wife, or your old Sunday school classmate, or your old church. We are called, as Romans puts it, we are called, if possible, so as far as it depends on you, to live peaceably with all. So let's attack conflict 
as a problem to be solved and a sin to be repented of. A third point to notice in this text is, and this is the main point of the text, is that we are to let peace rule in our hearts. <laughs> now, if you're like me, I read that and I'm like, what in the world does that mean, right? I was still trying to figure it out this morning at 5.15 while I was running, right? What does the peace, what does it mean for peace to rule in our hearts? Well, there are two questions we have to answer in order to get to the bottom of this verse, right? The one question is, what kind of peace is in view here, right? Is this world peace? No, right? What, what, kind, what kind of peace is in view? And then, obviously, the text says it's... Uh, well, and the second question would be, and then what does it mean for peace to rule? Okay, so, so what kind of peace? Obviously, it's, the text says it's Christ peace, but Christ brought peace on multiple levels, right? I mean, there's some who interpret this to be uh, like an, an inner peace, right? The inner peace that is similar to like Philippians 4 peace. Peace that, that comes after prayer. Peace that guards your heart. Okay, now that's an option, a good option. Or some would say that it's, it's the inner peace that comes from from walking in the will of God. To, to, uh, it's, 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 an, it's an inner peace that comes from, from obedience, right? And that peace can be disrupted when we sin or when we live uh, distant from the Lord. It's peace that comes from following his commands, some say. I suppose those are attractive and I would say probably even relevant options. I, I think they're, they're okay. But I'm, I'm more inclined to think that the peace that is in view here, the peace of Christ is interpersonal peace, relational peace. And the reason I think that is, is even if all these other aspects of, of peace are, are connected, I'm, I'm inclined to go with the context, right? Verses 12 and 13, we've seen are all about these graces, these Christian virtues that are relational, right? Compassion is a relational virtue, same thing in verse 13. And then after verse 14, we move into the language of, of the body, right? Language of being called together into a body. So, so the text is highlighting how the peace that we have found with God enables all of this other relational peace. It, it flows out of it. So that's, that's, that's my inclination. And New Testament writers are constantly... These are these verses that slide in, but they're constantly calling us to live at peace with one another. We're to focus on peacemaking, and we're to focus on peacekeeping. Listen to a couple of these texts, right? Uh, these were, they, they sneak in. And, and in the Gospel of Mark, verse, chapter 9, it says, Salt is good, but if salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Hmm. Or 2 Corinthians chapter 13, uh, Paul's concluding a, a, a letter and he says, Finally, brothers, aim for restoration. Comfort one another. Agree with one another. Live in peace. And the God of love and the God of peace will be with you, right? It's a sort of peace, a relational peace that is made possible by putting on love. The supreme virtue that we see in this text, it's, 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 it is love that yields all of these glorious qualities of Christian virtue that we've seen in verses 12 and 13. Do you remember how we've been tracing this? 
We've been using the same pattern, right? Uh, I do the same thing every time. We forgive. Why? Well, because we have been forgiven. And we forgive how? In the same way that we have been forgiven. We are humble. Why? Well, because we understand the cross and that affects, that makes us humble in in how we treat other people. Or, Or we love. Why? Because we have been loved by God. And we love how? In the same way that we have been loved by God sacrificially, right? The Christian life is imitation. We imitate what God has done to us. So, but what does it mean to be ruled by this peace? How, how can be, the, if, if this relational, this peace of Christ, the, the peace that comes from Christ, it's relational peace, what does it mean for that to rule in our lives? Well, the word here for rule, it's not used anywhere else in the New Testament. So, so to understand it, we have to, we have to think about, we've got to ask really smart people, and smart people tell us what, how the word's used in other Greek literature, which is really, it's often very interesting. But it's clear here that Paul chose a word that means uh, to arbitrate, or better yet, to umpire. Right? You can think of umpiring, right? It's, it's, um, it's one of umpiring. Paul is saying that we are to let this relational peace that's been established by Christ's rule, let it, let it umpire in your heart. That is, when you find yourself in the midst of conflict, or if you're in a contested situation, right, where there's differences that threaten to disturb the peace that Christ has purchased, that disturb the unity between Christians and between people, let Christ's peace rule. Now that's still a little bit abstract for me. So let's see if we can illustrate this, right? As a boy, I was uh, growing up, I had the unique opportunity to grow up with um, several guys that have been lifelong friends from kindergarten to some before all the way uh, to friendships that continue now. These are uh, guys that were in my wedding and we, yeah. So even though uh, these were all future pastors, missionaries, and counselors, we, we had our share of boyish mischief and silliness. And one of our favorite pastimes, one of our uh, more pulpit appropriate pastimes was that we really enjoyed playing wiffle ball. And if you ask my wife, when I get interested in things, I'm not like mildly interested. I'm like laser focused. It's kind of an all or nothing sort of thing. And we were all like that. And so we were, we were totally into wiffle ball in the backyard and we took it really seriously. And the wiffle ball we played was our own unique variation. It was always two on two and it cannot be played any other way. Three versus three occasionally, never four versus four, one versus one doesn't work, right? Two on two wiffle ball. And we had a unique field, right? Uh, bushes in certain places, a patch of clover was very important, right? All these things were very important for the rules. And we played for years and years. I mean, hundreds of games. And you've got to understand that your performance in wiffle ball had a significant impact on your life. Uh, It affected how much trash you could talk. It affected how much you were mocked and made fun of. It affected how, uh, it affected who did the chores, right? It had a significant impact on our life and the quality of our life. And, and like all home-brewed games, we had this unwritten, unwritten rule book that, that grew and grew over the years. But you've got to understand that a big part of wiffle ball, we didn't call it wiffle ball, we called it wiffle or waffle, uh, was cheating, 
And don't think like bad cheating. Think like strategic, like, um, it, it was like it was in the rule book, right? Like, uh, it was an accepted part of the game. There's no umpire and there's no, there's no ref and, and there were clear rules, but part of those clear rules were that those rules could be broken if you could get away with it. It was just part of it, right? So part of the game was catching people and, and, or talking them out of it. So arguing and debating was a significant part of, of, of Wiffle, right? So, and, of course, we had a detailed language for this, and that language had a name. It was bull talk, right? So whoever could talk the best bull was a better Wiffle ball player because you had an advantage, right? That was a big part of the fun. And we, as 16, 18, 22-year-old men, were men of passion. And sometimes the arguments would get heated. So much so that I got into a physical alteration, uh, possibly, um, with one of my best friends over a pop foul. And uh, the event, the location of this altercation, of this fight, became famous. It became known as the mud hole. So for years we'd say, all right, go take it out in the mud hole, right? Because we may have uh, gotten to a, a fight in a mud hole. And, and it, was a, it, it was a really sad day because it got too far, right? And I was clearly right, and I won the fight. And... Um, and one of the guys uh, who wasn't in the fight, he, he started to, he got emotionally upset when he saw what was happening. It just got, it got too, it got too far. I mean, we were best friends who were fighting over a game. We lost the piece. One year, we decided to have a, a wiffle ball tournament, a proper wiffle ball tournament. There were brackets. We brought in lights. We lit up the field. And uh, we decided that we needed to have an umpire. In an effort to cut down on some of the bull talk and the fighting, we asked one of our friend's dads, um, who respected the spirit of the game, he understood the rules, and he had a fair eye, uh, to be the umpire. And his role was to be the arbitrator, right? To keep, to be the settler of disputes, to keep us out of the mud hole, which is where it often, it often ended up. And, and even with Tom, um, man, there were so many disputes. But what Tom said ruled the day, right? He was the umpire. What he said ruled the day. He had the final word. And friends, for us, the gospel of peace is to have the final word. It is to be the settler of disputes. So wherever there's conflict, whenever the peace is disturbed, not by foul balls, but by, but by sin and violent passions, the peace of Christ, his peace is to be the clear and authoritative voice that rings into the circumstance. It is, it is the call of the umpire that yells, peace, peace. Every time, no matter what the play is, his voice rings out and his call is the same every time. Oh, you sinner, Christ has died for you act accordingly. That is the call of the peace of Christ. You sinner, Christ has died for you. Act accordingly. Do you see how every dispute can be settled by this call? Even when you've been clearly wronged, as I was. I was the foul ball. Anyways, even when you have been clearly wronged, 
Even where there's a clear foul, the call goes out, O sinner, remember Christ has died for you. So love, forgive, be humble, strive for peace. To put it really, to put it practically, what this means, if you're going to let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, it's ruling over other passions, which, yield to, which lead to fights, but, but it means that for the sake of peace and for the sake of the gospel, you will give preference to peace over your rights. Preference to peace over your own rights. Peace becomes more important than winning the argument. Peace becomes more important than justice. For me, my arguments are often about justice, right? I'm trying to convince something that something needs to be a certain way, and I apparently think I need to be the one that brings justice. You need to know you're wrong and understand, right? But in peace, peace becomes more important than being right. Unity becomes more important. One of the clearest places we can see this in the scriptures is in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 7. Paul is speaking about lawsuits. And he's speaking about how insane they are for Christians. Like they don't make sense for Christians. He says this, listen carefully. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? What a great picture of what it means to let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. It is better to suffer wrong. But Paul speaks of it as if, duh, like doesn't, doesn't not make sense. Would you not rather be wronged than let, the, than let dis, disunity creep into the church? What an incredible picture. Do you hear the governing principle? It's better to be wronged. It's better to suffer Friends, those of us who were once enemies of God, who have now been reconciled to God and who now enjoy peace with Him through Christ, we should naturally live at peace with one another, even when it costs. Just like we saw on Sunday. Those who have been reconciled to God and have received the staggering, eternal peace of the gospel, we should have nothing but peaceful relationships. Remember Romans, as far as it depends on you, but nothing but peaceful relationships. This is God's intention for his people. He has called us to this perfect harmony. One of the glorious and hopeful implications of this is that whenever there's conflict among two Christians, whether it's a husband and a wife, whether it's a parent and a child, whether it's two church members or friends, There's always hope for reconciliation. There's always hope. This is so so important, especially in marriage, when conflict can become intense. If Christ has called us to this perfect peace, and if you have two Christians, there's always hope. Because God can do this. So, So don't throw in the towel. God has saved us for this very purpose. And he's planted the peace of Christ in our hearts to rule and to reconcile. So don't ever stop working for peace. As far as it depends on you, do all that you can, right? Often, sometimes, there's nothing else you can do. But don't be the cause of the disunity. As far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. 
One final point tacked on to the end of this verse here in verse 15, where you see this call to put on thanksgiving. You see it there in verse 15, and be thankful. And so finally, I'd like to commend to you the practice of gospel, what I'll call gospel thanksgiving. I suppose we could wrap up all of the motivation for the Christian ethics of these four verses and call it gospel thanksgiving. To let your life be dominated by thanksgiving. That if you let your life be dominated by thanksgiving, then you will find plenty of resources to live this sort of life, this kind of faithfulness. God is calling for the new self, right? That's what's in view in chapter 3, for this new self to be dominated or to be ruled by this pattern of gospel thanksgiving. And it basically goes like this. Take any situation you want. doesn't matter what it is. Good, bad, in between. Any situation, fill in the blank. You can work through it like this. Number one, I'm a sinner. (laughs) I'm a sinner deserving of nothing but God's wrath. I was once hostile to God in both my mind and my actions. I was doing evil deeds. I was without any hope or any merit of salvation. I was dead in my trespasses. And the uncircumcision of my flesh. But look what God has done for me. Look what he has done for me. He has made me alive together in Christ. He has forgiven all of my trespasses. He has taken them and he has canceled my record of debt. He's canceled my debt and he has now, he didn't just leave me bankrupt, but he raised me to a new life and gave me an eternal inheritance. This is so incredible and this is so undeserving that I can accept a foul. I can be wronged. I can be humble. I can let other people think lowly of me. I can let other people be elevated above me. And I can live in harmony with difficult people. Why? God has done all of this for me. So no matter what the circumstance is, have a heart that is full of gospel thankfulness. How could I, if God has done this for me, how could I not do this for others? Not to mention the thousands of other blessings that he adds of family and health and friendship and church, right? How could I, in view of what I deserve and in view of what God has done for me, how could I ever get to a point where I say, no, no more grace. I can't give any more. Brothers and sisters, we are debtors to God. Debtors of grace. This is gospel thanksgiving. We love because he first loved us. And he has loved us well, has he not? So now go be like God. Be loving, be forgiving, and live at peace. Even and especially with difficult sinners. Let me close this in prayer. Father, I pray that you would impart the truth of these words onto our hearts. Help us to be governed by and to be ruled by the peace of Christ, which he has purchased for us by his blood and he has blessed us. Help us to be a kind of people who live at peace with others because of the way you've pursued us, your enemies. Help us never to lose our wonder and sense of awe at this glorious truth. And even as we go tonight, help us to be thankful. We ask this in your name. Amen. You dismiss church. Go in peace.